0: Well, good morning. It is uh, thank you to this side of the room. It's good to see you all. Good morning over here. Hello. How are you? I'm only giving you a hard time because I heard them say good morning back to me. That was nice. So uh, anyway, maybe, maybe everybody's not having such a good morning. I don't know. It is good to to be here this morning, it is good to be back in the Word of God together again. We have been walking through the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Um, this is so. This is a study through Titus that will again eventually turn into a study through First and Second Timothy as well, looking really at um, really the foundation of the New Testament church in a series that we're calling letters from the pastor. Now, clearly, we're going to be back in Titus 2 today. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, some of you are very faithful in reading ahead, um, because I really don't um, hide where it is we're going to be next. If you've been with us in any stretch of time, you know we really just kind of walk through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse. And so several of you this week, uh, by God's grace, have sent me uh, several messages about this particular uh, passage saying, Pastor, we are praying for you. Others of you uh, simply sent me a text message or an email, and all you said was, good luck, Um, And I'm not really sure how I should take that, but okay, we'll see how it goes. So anyway, this morning, our goal with our passage today in Titus 2 is to really see that the gospel produces a godly service that opens the door for gospel proclamation. So what's going to happen this morning is we're just going to be looking at two verses. But within these two verses, we are going to dive into a hot-button topic within our country. And what we're going to hopefully do with that is to really begin to see and understand a biblical perspective, if you will, of slavery. You see, here's the reality for us today. There are very few topics, whether in modern day or history, or very few moments, whether again today or in history, that reveal the depth and breadth of the total depravity of mankind, like the issue of slavery. You see, throughout history, we have seen societies treating image bearers of God as a commodity to be bought or sold. Now, I think we could all affirm today that Slavery itself was a practice that was both barbaric and ugly in nature. In fact, historically, when we look at history of slavery, we can see that in, within the first century, one out of three people in Rome and one out of five in other areas of the world were slaves. Now, in early first century, in order to become a slave... You were either a prisoner of war or captured during war itself. You became a slave by defaulting on debt, or maybe you uh, didn't have the ability to support your family, and so you volunteered yourself to be sold. In the first century, there were parents who were poor and destitute, and in the midst of their poorness, they would sell their children. You could be born a slave, to become a slave in the first century, or maybe convicted of a crime, and that's what made you a slave. Or yes, in some instances in the first century, you could be kidnapped and therefore made a slave. Now, this was very unlike slavery in the United States. You see, unlike slavery in the U.S., slavery in the ancient world did not discriminate, and therefore it cut across social, racial, and national lines. In other words, slavery during the Roman Empire, slavery during the first century, anyone could be a slave. Now, it's at this point that we have to ask ourselves historically, since Christianity was spreading throughout the ancient world, Shouldn't slavery have been stopped then? Well, they tried. But unfortunately, that was not the case. You see, Justinian tried to abolish slavery, but he was met with great resistance. And then ultimately, when Rome and the Roman Empire ultimately collapsed, slavery actually transitioned into what was called serfdom. Now, you look years later and you begin to see things like the Crusades. And during the Crusades, we saw an increase in slavery as Christian slaves were often sold to Muslims. Now, we fast forward many years later and we see the birth of a new world, we see the birth of a new country. And that ultimately would lead us into what we now know as slavery within our own country. You see, there was a time where within the United States and throughout the world, more than 24 million Africans found themselves enslaved to other peoples. And yes, here in the United States, many of the people they were enslaved to were people who called themselves Christians. Christians. But here's the reality. African tribes had been enslaving other African tribes for years. But with the growth of the new world, though positive and powerful that the United States would ultimately become, it would also expose crimes against humanity that were shameful beyond imagination. And for much of our history in this country, would often go untouched and very rarely discussed. You see, slavery in the United States was very different. People were kidnapped from their homes. Families would be destroyed, and cruelty would run rampant. Now, prior to the Civil War and post revolution, many of our founding faith fathers were actually abolitionists, but even their movement would fail to take root in our new world and new society. And so, again, we have to ask ourselves in history where were the Christians? Where were the Baptists? Or better yet, we are a Southern Baptist church. Where were the Southern Baptists? What were we doing? Well, sadly, as we would see, many Baptists in the South would make the argument that what God had sanctioned in the Old Testament and permitted in the New Testament clearly cannot be sin. And so Baptist leaders like Richard Fuller and James Pettigrew Boyce, men like John A. Broadus, each of these men tragically came down on the wrong side of this particular issue as they misrepresented the text of God's holy word. You see, one of the things that we don't often want to discuss with slavery is the slavery itself actually played a major role in the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention in the year of 1845. You see, as a nation, we were becoming much more divided over hot issues, issues particularly that dealt with slavery. And so Northern Baptist pastors, Northern churches began forcing the issue with Southern Baptists and Southern Baptist pastors to the point where they began to forcibly remove these pastors from their convention, which ultimately led them to start their own convention. But thankfully, by God's grace, Christians did in fact lead the charge in abolishing slavery. Men like William Wibbleforce, Granville Sharp, John Wesley, Charles Finney, even Frederick Douglass, just to name a few, helped lead this charge. In fact, leading into the Civil War, many Southern Baptist pastors would join in fighting the issue of slavery. Now, if you, again, if you go back in history in 1808, Congress ultimately ended slave trade, but slavery was clearly far from over in the United States. Slavery is what led to the Civil War, and though the issue should have ended with the war in 1865, clearly the mistreatment of people of color carried well into what we would call modern-day history. You see, here's the truth, and we have to be honest with ourselves today. Slavery still exists in our world today, especially in areas where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not taken hold. There are children in our world today who are taken from their homes, children even in our own country who are trafficked to men who see them as nothing but a commodity, and once they are taken, they are given a four-year lifespan. We have boys and girls, young men and young women today all over our world who are being forced into slave labor for many of the very products that we purchase today in our country. But here's the reality. You see, where there is a flame or a pulse for Christianity... There you will find the fight to end slavery. So, for Christians, when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the Bible and the issue of slavery, we need to affirm the following statements. You see, the Bible regulates but does not require slavery. Slavery is not a divine institution, nor is it ever endorsed by the Bible, as some would have us to believe. The Bible also teaches that if you can gain your freedom according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 through 24, then you should do that and go for it, but don't turn that freedom into an excuse for sin. You see, we also see throughout the New Testament, slavery itself is actually unmasked for the sin that it is and should be destroyed. In fact, scriptures itself, in speaking of rebellion... We see that Scripture does not advocate for bloodshed. It does not advocate for rebellion and overturning evil structures of society. Rather, what Scripture calls us to do is to attack with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with the grace of God in mind. And so, as we look at our text today, Paul is going to turn the table on slavery. And he's going to place it into an eternal perspective. So with eternity in mind, Paul in speaking to slaves will teach them that the slave is master of his master for the master. You see, the slave who knows Jesus Christ is the slave who possesses the gospel that saves. So here is Paul in Titus chapter 2, an often misused and misquoted text. He is going to reveal that all of us, in some way, shape, or form, all of us are in service to someone else. So through that service, by God's grace as a servant, we have the opportunity to share the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me now to Titus chapter 2. We're going to begin reading Paul's words in verse 9. And once you have found your place there, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes... Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have here in these next few moments just to to take a look at this particular passage. And Lord, I pray that as we study these words, Father, let us not become people who take a particular passage out of context, but rather help us to understand it according to who you are. And so, Father, we pray in these next few moments for your grace. We pray for your truth, the reign supreme. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds and may you and you alone be glorified in these next few moments. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, and it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, I recognize that's a very long introduction to a sermon passage, and you're probably hoping that we're going to knock out these two verses within the next five minutes. And so by God's grace... We will knock out these next two verses, but hopefully, prayerfully, it may take a little bit longer than five minutes. Um, The reason why we are covering this is obviously because this is the very next section in our passage, but the other reason why we are talking about verse 9 and 10 separately is because these are the two passages that often get misquoted and taken out of context, and it has been that way since the start of modern history here in the United States. Now, again, in order to set the scene for you, we need to realize that in looking at verses 1 through 8, we saw that we were called to pursue godliness. We saw that as believers, we have been called to biblical roles in the church, and we saw that what calls us and compels us is the gospel itself. And so in looking at verses 1 through 8, we should see that the gospel should produce godliness in the life of a believer as a testimony to the unbelieving world. So that by the time we get to verse 9 and 10, we should hopefully see that the gospel now produces an opportunity for what we can now call today servant evangelism. So as servants today, not not as slaves in terms of what we think of as slavery in the United States, but as servants, we are under the authority of others. And so by God's grace and according to His sovereign plan, we now have an opportunity to work in a field that is ripe For the harvest. So when Paul is writing these words in verses 9 and 10, that is exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to Titus and to the local body of believers within the following verses. So what I hope we see today is the calling that is placed upon each of us as servants of God as we look to servant evangelism. So let's just take a look at this if we could. As servants, we are called first to be productive according to verse 9. Now, if you look again at verse 9, you'll notice it starts with the word bondservants. Many of our English translations, in fact, I think most of them, actually start with the word bondservant. Now, if you look up the Greek word, the word is doulos, or doulos, if you will, which literally translates to the word slave, but for the English-speaking word, we translated that word as the word servant, Now, for many people, they get confused about that, and they wonder, well, why the two different words? Well, you can actually use bondservant or slave interchangeably, but if you go back and look in your Bibles, many of your Bibles have this beautiful thing called a preface that most people do not read. And so within that preface, it'll actually explain to you why this particular word was used. But for the sake of argument today, when the the word bondservant is being used over slave, it's because there was a distinct difference between first century slavery and the slavery that we know in the United States. You see, for a Roman slave, that particular slave would often serve seven years as opposed to what we think of in modern culture when we think of slaves who were slaves for life. During the Roman Empire, many slaves were treated respectfully and treated well. Again, there was no social construct that made you a slave. Anyone at any time under any circumstance could find themselves in slavery during the first century. However, that was clearly not the case in the United States. So, to avoid the argument... In order to help people better understand what Paul was talking about with verse 9 and 10, the, uh, the translators opted for the word bondservant so that we would not miss the point of what Paul is trying to say. You see, what Paul is doing here... Is he starting by calling us servants, and as servants, we are to be submissive to our masters? Now, it's at this point we now have to ask, well, how or better yet, why as believers in Jesus Christ are we called to be submissive to our masters or better yet in the workplace, submissive to our bosses? Well, as we read earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24, we saw and read the words that when we serve, we are serving the Lord Christ himself. You see, when we look at Colossians chapter 3, In light of Titus chapter 2, we see that this passage ultimately raises the stakes as we realize in our service we are serving Jesus Christ. So as believers in Christ who want to glorify God in our worship, who want to glorify God in our time with our family, who want to glorify God as we study Him, we too should want to glorify God as we faithfully serve. Him in our workplaces. In other words, when we go to work, we should want to serve. We should desire to help. We should hope to honor our boss, because to do so is to honor the Lord Himself. Now, are there exceptions to this rule? Well, the obvious answer is yes, there are. You see, if your boss asks you to do something that is unbiblical or illegal or unethical or immoral, then don't do it. You see, our goal is to submit to our boss. Our goal is to serve our boss all the while seeing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who stands directly behind our boss. You see, when we serve, we are to serve in such a way that makes us productive servants. Secondly, we see that we are to be and we are called to be people who are well-pleasing. Now, again, in verse 9, Paul uses the phrase well-pleasing in Everything. Now, Paul, in speaking to servants here, he's actually addressing the scope and the spirit of our service. So for the believer, growing out of an attitude of submission, we ultimately see the scope of our service. In other words, we are called to be pleasing in all things. In other words, in everything that we do, we are to do that which is pleasing. Not only do we see the scope of our work, but then as servants of Christ, in order to be well-pleasing, we now see the spirit of our work. In other words, the attitude in which that work is being done. Now, Paul actually speaks of this uh, to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, when he says these words, Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. In other words, the attitude of our work, the heart of our work, is to be done so well that we are serving the Lord both in action and again in attitude. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, as servants of our Lord who are serving other bosses, through our service, we are to put on the full display of the grace of God for all to see. In other words, when we work, please hear this. When we go to work, when Monday happens, And you know what I'm talking about when Monday happens. Monday is that evil day of the week that shows up where most of us have to go to work. But when we go to work, we are to serve gladly and not begrudgingly. When we go to work, we are to serve joyfully and not resentfully. Now, this would take Paul to his very next point in, with Titus. He says that we are to called to be polite in our speech. Again, here in verse 9, Paul here calls the believers to not be argumentative. In other words, we are not to be contentious or disagreeable. You see, Christians who serve others do not gripe about their boss behind his back to others. You see, here's the reality for us as believers. When we begin to talk about others behind their backs, we are compromising our own testimony as followers of Jesus Christ. We may think our words are hurting other people's, whether that's the intent or not. But the reality is, it is only hurting our testimony. In fact, we need to realize that our words are a powerful weapon. Every war we have ever fought has started with words. And here's the truth. A few careless words can destroy a testimony that took a lifetime to build. You see, Scripture here is clear on how speech can actually ruin testimonies. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12, we read that a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. We read in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 6, that a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. We see in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. You see, a person's speech is a clear indication of that person's heart. You see, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A servant of Jesus Christ, a person who is enslaved to Christ because of the price that has been paid for them. That servant will be polite in his speech, especially when talking to his boss or his authority or talking about his boss or authority. Paul then moves on from there into verse 10. And he speaks of how we as believers are called to be moral and ethical in our service. In other words, Paul says that we are not to be pilfering. In other words, we are not to steal. You see, a servant of Jesus Christ is not a thief. A Christian in the workplace can be trusted when the boss is in, but also when no one is around and no one is watching a Christian, a servant of the Lord, is someone who is honest and dependable. They are people of integrity and they do not take what belongs to another or, nor do they try to justify that theft by saying, well, clearly I have earned it or I deserve it and you don't. You see, a servant of the Lord will willingly go the extra mile for the purpose of accountability. A servant of the Lord in the workplace will not inflate expense accounts, nor will they falsify their time sheets, nor will they fudge the numbers slightly in order to look good. You see, a Christian conducts themselves with absolute honesty and integrity. You see, a Christian realizes that they serve Jesus Christ and therefore they would never think of stealing from Jesus. And so if you wouldn't steal from Jesus you shouldn't steal from work. Paul goes on to there and he says that as servants we are called to be faithful. Now Paul here calls the believers to be believers who show themselves in all good faith. Now, I don't know if you're looking at this in verse 10, but there's actually a conjunction that happens here. It says, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. I would actually circle the word but, because what happens here and what follows is a strong and emphatic rejection of ultimately what comes before it. So for the believer, our faithfulness to our bosses should be evident and visible to all. In other words, the trustworthiness, the reliability, the dependability of a Christian is always on display, whether in action or or in word you see as believers in christ again as servants of the most high god we should be known for our loyalty we should be known for our integrity even with without even having anyone looking over our shoulders or wondering the type of life and lifestyles we live you see even if our boss is a tyrant Even if he's a bully, even if they are micromanagers and we don't care for that, our responsibility is to put God's transforming power on full display so that we and our work will be seen as a blessing and not as a curse. You see, again, our goal is to serve, it's not to steal. Paul then calls the bondservants and believers to be praiseworthy. In other words, Paul here in verse 10 comes now to what should be the noble end of every believer. He says that in everything, adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. You see, the kind of servant that Paul is describing here is one who makes beautiful the teachings of God. So, as a servant under authority, the servant makes beautiful the ways of God by his productive, well-pleasing, polite, moral, and faithful service. So, as we serve in a way that is praiseworthy, our work will then be put on display and therefore our work should display the very character of God. Thus notice what happens. In that moment it's not just our work that people are seeing. They are now seeing the most holy God shining through so that others may see him and follow him. I love what Hayne Griffin has to say at this point. He says, inevitably, unbelievers judge the gospel message by the lives of those who embrace it. As we live and identify ourselves as Christians, we can make the gospel message attractive and credible by our godly attitudes and behavior. Charles Spurgeon would also add at this point that the life of the Christian, even if he is a servant, is to be an ornament of Christianity. Christ does not look for the ornament of his religion to the riches or the talents of his followers, but to their holy lives that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You see, as believers in Christ, as servants of the Most High God, as people who work and in some way, shape, or form sit under the authority of another, we are to pursue, to live, and to serve godliness that is worthy of the praise of our Lord and Savior. But here's the reality. These same principles that Paul is speaking of to the bondservant in terms of their work, they also apply to the faithful believers as they serve the church as well. You see, we should faithfully serve the church. Our work and our words in the church should be well-pleasing. We should manage our time well that we have together. We ought to be seen productive in all things, i.e. we ought to be Discipling others, shepherding others, recognizing that when we gather for worship, we gather, yes, to glorify God, but even in the midst of gathering to glorify God, our worship can be an encouragement or an instruction for others to follow. You see, I find it interesting that Paul would end this section on pursuing godliness, speaking of our biblical roles, he would end it by talking about the role of the servant. You see, the reality is whether you're an older man, a younger man, an older woman, or a younger woman, like we talked about last week, we all have a role to play, and a part of that role is service to others. You see, Paul here in verses 9 and 10, Paul didn't make a mistake. Paul didn't intend for his words to be taken out of context. Rather, what Paul does is he uniquely includes the role of the slave within the biblical roles of the faith family. Recognizing that it's not the type of slavery that we think of here in the United States and what has dominated our history. But rather it is defined as a role of servitude. Serving within the community, but also serving the local body. Now, notice what Paul does here. Paul teaches this role in such a way as to not endorse slavery. Rather, he shows us that we are all called to serve someone at some point. But now pay attention here. Because the opposite of what Paul said can be true as well. You see, without the mind of Christ, without a heart that seeks to glorify God and make much of the name of Jesus, without the filling of the Spirit, we still can find ourselves serving. But we will find ourselves serving in ways that are rebellious and not submissive. We will serve in ways that we will be found as irritable and not pleasant or ugly and not polite. We will be thieves and not honest. And yes, we can serve in a way that is unfaithful and embarrassing as opposed to being a blessing. You see, this will not only be how we serve our bosses in a workplace or how we faithfully serve our church, but it will also reflect in how we serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as well. You see, when we are the servants, when we're not the master, we will soon begin to see and discover whether our faith is real and our profession is genuine. You see, the reality is none of us are in the positions we are in by accident. Our sovereign God put us where we are so that by our lives, by our actions, through our words, those who see us will also see the beauty of the gospel. They will see the beauty of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we serve, may we realize that even in our service, we are called to be evangelistic. As we practice servant evangelism, may we realize that we simply are not serving others, but we are also serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with the goal of making Him known. So as servants, may our actions and our words Point others to the beauty that is found within knowing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that here in these moments we've had an opportunity to really look at Titus 2, verses 9 and 10 And not to simply see them through the lens of what the world would have us see them and therefore mislead us, but see them in the way that you ordained. Father, you have called us to be servants. You have bought each one of us at a price. And so if we're going to be enslaved to anything, Lord, may we be enslaved to you today. God, I pray that whether in retirement, in between work, within work, even in the midst of school, thinking of our futures, Father, may we see the authority of whom we are under. May we be gracious in speech, May we work hard in attitude. May we serve joyfully, knowing that the work you have called us to, you have called us there for a reason, and that reason is to make you known so that you are glorified above all else. So, Father, as we go into this week, in our work, in our meetings, in our conversations, Father, may our actions and our words speak of you and who you are. Lord, in our work, may you be glorified, whether at at a workplace, in a home. Father, even in church, may we serve you faithfully, giving you all praise. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for the price that you paid for us a price that we didn't deserve. We have done nothing to earn. But yet you looked upon us with your love and your grace. And so, Father, as your people, may we graciously love, may we willingly serve, and may we boldly proclaim your truth and your name. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.